I Take History with My Coffee podcast, Episode 6, The Voyage of Vasco da Gama. In the year 1497, King Dom Manuel, the first of that name in Portugal, dispatched four vessels to make discoveries and go in search of spices. Vasco da Gama was the captain major of these vessels. Paulo da Gama, his brother, commanded one of them, and Nicolau Cohilo, another. A journal of the first voyage of Vasco da Gama in 1497 to 1499. Author unknown. Welcome back to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast, and thank you for continuing our exploration of the early modern period. So here we are at the pivotal moment of Vasco da Gama's voyage to India. In previous episodes, we explored the background of Portuguese exploration and the situation in the Indian Ocean region on the eve of da Gama's voyage. Much of this episode will be based upon the only extent personal account of da Gama's first voyage. This is the Rotero, which can be loosely translated to mean a journal. The manuscript once belonged to the convent of Santa Cruz at Caimbra, northeast of Lisbon, Portugal. It was later transferred to the public library in Porto. The journal has been listed by UNESCO as one of the world's most prestigious documents. This edition of the journal is not the original, but the work of a copyist. But an analysis of the handwriting indicates it was created early in the 16th century, close to the time of the actual voyage. As of date, the authorship of the journal has not been firmly determined. Several candidates from those known to be among da Gama's crew have been put forward with no conclusive evidence for any of them. Other first-hand records certainly must have existed and probably were consulted for the 16th century histories, the Decades of Asia by Joao de Barros, and the Chronicle of King Manuel by Damiao de Goas. But these two sources provide very little detail regarding the actual navigation of the voyage. There is also a handful of contemporary second-hand accounts that were created after da Gama's return from India. When Bartolomeu Diaz returned from discovering the means to round the southern tip of Africa, King John II immediately decided to outfit a new fleet of ships, and he selected Vasco da Gama to be the commander. King John II would die in 1495 before the fleet was ready, but his successor, Manuel I, confirmed the choice of da Gama as the captain major. The exact reasons why da Gama was selected is not known. The few contemporary sources and the later sources agree that such an appointment would not have been made lightly. Da Gama 
had already proven his worth to the crown, and he had a reputation for being high-spirited, unyielding, and a highly competent seaman, one who could possibly have equaled the best pilots in Europe. And most importantly, on such a long and perilous voyage, he had the respect and confidence of those who served as his crew. It was the summer of 1497 that King Manuel I had escaped the heat of Lisbon for the royal palace in the hills of Monferrado, east of the capital. It was from here he probably dispatched da Gama on his expedition. The king did not return to the capital to witness this momentous departure. On Friday, July 7th, 1497, Vasco da Gama and his officers paid a visit to a small chapel by the Tagus River in Lisbon. The chapel had been commissioned by Prince Henry the Navigator and housed the small statue of Our Lady of Bellum. The chapel was replaced later in the 16th century by the Aronimus Monastery, one of Lisbon's most impressive sites. Here, da Gama held a vigil and prayed. The next morning, Saturday, July 8th, da Gama and his crew followed a procession of priests down to the beach. Everyone carried lighted candles, and the onlooking crowd chanted the responses to the liturgy being sung by the priests. Prior to embarking the ships, they celebrated Mass, and a priest absolved the departing seamen of their sins. The fleet departed Lisbon with the favor of the king, the church's blessings, and the excitement of the citizens of the city. Gama's fleet was comprised of four well-armed ships, a cargo of goods for trading, and loaded with at least three years of supplies. There are no contemporary descriptions of the ships, so even though their types can be inferred, we can only guess at their actual dimensions or any particular features. One of these ships, named the Berio, was the classic lanteen-ricked caravel that proved vital to the Portuguese success in exploring the coast of Africa for the past century. The two largest ships, the São Gabriel and the São Rafael, were built specifically for this voyage. Bartolomeu Diaz oversaw their construction. They were square-rigged vessels of greater berth. Despite being slower and more difficult to handle windward, these ships provided more comfort and safety for the crews. Using his experience, Diaz ensured that the design allowed the ships to sail an open ocean, as well as navigate shallow waters along the coast. The last vessel served as a mid-sized storage ship. Within two weeks, the fleet had reached the Cape Verde Islands, despite fog along the Saharan coast. They remained a couple of days in the shelter of one of the harbors of Santiago, the largest of the islands. There are very few details, even in the Rotero, about da Gama's trek from the Cape Verde Islands. He presumably headed eastward 
perhaps to follow the African coast like Diaz and others before him had done. But he more than likely ended up getting caught in the so-called doldrums. This is the intertropical convergence zone, a band between 5 degrees north and south of the equator. Here, the intense heating from the sun causes warm air to rise, which results in very little surface wind. It would be in this region that the Gama encountered days of calm, unpredictable winds, and sudden squalls. Despite efforts to head south, he would have been driven more to the west. This course brought him within 600 miles of Brazil. After several weeks, he eventually caught more favorable winds that would steer him back toward an easterly direction. By the middle of October, he had reached 30 degrees south, 15 degrees west, roughly 2,700 miles directly from the Cape Ferry Islands. In actuality, da Gama probably had covered a distance closer to 3,500 miles. After this, he gained the benefit of a strong easterly current, as well as strong westerlies. With good speed, he reached the mainland of Africa by the beginning of November. Da Gama laid anchor at the Bay of St. Helena, on the western coast of present-day South Africa. By this time, it can be assumed that the crew showed signs of scurvy, in which case they took this time to recover, get fresh water, meat, and repair the ships. They departed the bay on the 16th of November. Within a few days, they reached the Cape of Good Hope, but a gale delayed their passage. During the storm, the store ship was damaged. It would not be until the 22nd that they pushed past the Cape. They arrived near present-day Mosul Bay, and here they unloaded the store ship, redistributed the supplies among the other ships, and then burned the damaged vessel. They also encountered the indigenous Khoikhoi tribesmen. There was an attempt to exchange simple gifts, but relations soured quickly when the tribal leaders felt the Portuguese stole fresh water without the chief's permission. Fearing an attack, da Gama ordered a series of cannon blasts to ward off the unhappy natives. From here, da Gama sailed past where Diaz made the decision to turn around at the mouth of the Great Fish River. Da Gama now entered into territory and seas that no European had set sights on before. He began sailing up along the eastern shores of Africa, and with Christmas approaching, he decided to give the coastline the name of Natal. They found the fishing good off of Ponta de Pescaria near Durban, South Africa. After winds forced them further out to sea, the fleet found Anchorage along the coast of southern Mozambique. They established good relations with the local natives and called them Boa Genta, the good people. On April 7, 1498, they arrived at Mombasa in what is now Kenya. Mombasa, since at least the 12th century, had been one of the major trading centers along the eastern coast of Africa. The port traded in ivory, millet, gold, 
and spices. Like most of the cities in East Africa, Mombasa was an independent city-state governed by a Muslim sultan. Initially, the sultan of Mombasa sent to Gama gifts of sheep, fruits, and vegetables. But neither side could overcome mistrust, and relations quickly soured. Unable to secure entry to the port of Mombasa, Dagama sailed north to the rival port of Malindi, where he enjoyed a more favorable reception. After an exchange of gifts, peaceful relations were concluded, and the Sultan of Malindi offered to send an ambassador to Portugal upon Dagama's return visit. Most importantly for Dagama, the Sultan provided him a Muslim pilot from the Indian region of Gujarati. Under this pilot's guidance, they departed for India on April 24th. They took advantage of the southwest monsoon winds, and within a month, they had their first sighting of India. This is thought to be Mount Dali, on the Malabar coast just northeast of the present-day city of Kanur. This was the first glimpse of India by Europeans who sailed directly from a European port. Sometime in the evening of May 20th, 1498, Portuguese sea captain Vasco da Gama anchored in the harbor of Calicut on the southwestern coast of India. Calicut, now Kosciakode, in the Indian state of Kerala, was a major trading port on the Malabar coast. The majority of the trade in Indian spices went through the medieval city, and it was dubbed the City of Spices. This made the local rulers, the Zamaran, both wealthy and powerful. If Vasco da Gama had any pretensions of inspiring awe in the local population, those were squashed fairly quickly. His first meeting with the Zamaran was cordial and friendly when he spoke of their mission to find Christians and spices. Though the Portuguese seemed both surprised by and in awe of the opulence of the Zamaran court, the Zamaran, for his part, was less than impressed by the newcomers. When it came time to actually conduct business, the Portuguese did not fare well. They were informed that the custom dictated that they present the Zamaran with gifts first before any negotiations. The Gama produced 12 pieces of striped cloth, four scarlet hoods, six hats, four strings of coral, a case of six wash hand basins, a case of sugar, two casks of oil, and two of honey. This attempt brought derisive laughter from the Indian ruler and his court. Dagama tried to save face by declaring himself an ambassador of the King of Portugal rather than a simple merchant. The Zamoran indicated that if the king could only send trinkets, then he wasn't worthy of being recognized. He could not be bothered with such an obscure king in an obscure place. 
Zamorin was not an unreasonable man, though. He did grant the Portuguese permission to peddle their wares in the bazaar, like any other common merchant. Unhappy with the situation, but not wanting to return empty-handed, da Gama agreed. They set up shop in the marketplace and soon realized that no one in Calicut desired anything the Europeans were selling. In the meantime, the established Arab merchants watched them closely. The hostility of the Arabs grew over time. They embarked on a campaign of slander against the European rivals. The Arabs painted them as pirates, and when the Portuguese complained, it fell on deaf ears. The Europeans had contributed nothing to the royal coffers. Within three months of arriving, da Gama departed Calicut, his mission a seeming failure. The return voyage back across the India Ocean was not as easy as in the spring. Da Gama had been warned by the locals that the monsoon had yet to turn, and subsequently the fleet met with contrary winds as well as long periods of calm. Da Gama suffered delays which brought on a new epidemic of scurvy among the crew. His crew had been reduced significantly by the time they once again reached the friendly port of Melindi. The grounding of the Sao Rafael on a reef forced the Gama to consolidate his crew among the remaining two ships, and then the Sao Rafael was burned. With just the Sao Gabriel and the Berrio, the Gama rounded the Cape of Good Hope with little incident, remaining in the Cape Verde Islands for about a month following the death of his brother. The Gama at last arrived back in Lisbon in September 1499. He was welcomed as a hero by the king, and though he came back with only a small quantity of spices, they represented the potential profits that could be garnered by the crown. The Portuguese were not deterred in their desire to monopolize this newfound trade route. Da Gama's accomplishment was the Portuguese moon landing. The direct route to India had been found, and with it, direct access to the lucrative spice trade. Whereas Columbus needed only to sail directly westward across the Atlantic, Vasco da Gama had the more demanding voyage. Da Gama needed to contend with hazardous coastlines, shifting winds, and variable currents. It was only after the gaining of an experienced pilot did da Gama's task become easier. But it also has been argued that da Gama had more experienced and skillful pilots than Columbus, and the Portuguese charts, a result of a century of exploration, were far superior with a lesser margin of error than those used by Columbus. The English historian Arnold Toynbee made a case in the early 20th century that da Gama's accomplishment was far more significant than Columbus's. He made the argument that we should be talking not about pre-Columbian or the age of Columbus, but rather 
pre-Vasco da Gama and the era of Vasco da Gama. It was the Portuguese who initiated the accelerated pace of globalization that has led to the modern era. Over the next 50 years, the Portuguese will insert themselves from Africa to Southeast Asia, as well as South America. In the next episode, we will look at the rise of the Portuguese Empire. Links to additional resources can be found in the episode description. Comments and feedback are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com. Visit my blog at itakehistory.com and on Facebook at I Take History with My Coffee. If you know anyone who would also enjoy this podcast, please let them know. And thank you for listening. Music